0: Hi everyone, and thankful we're all together as we continue our exploration through the Gospel of John. I'm Colin, and today Pastor Brian Broderson is back in Chapter 2, this time with the story of Jesus in the temple. As He goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus finds the temple being defiled by merchants and money changers. In His anger, He overturns their tables and orders them to leave. So, just as Jesus wanted to purify that house of worship, He still seeks to refine His church today. Equally, if we are the temple of the living God, Pastor Brian tells us that we should let the one who allowed himself to be destroyed so he wouldn't have to be, rebuild the temple of God in us. So, open your Bible or Bible app to John chapter 2 for a message entitled, Jesus in the Temple. Our series is titled, as some of you will remember, Life in His Name. And so that, that's kind of the lens that we're seeking to look at John's gospel through. Um, that's really the lens that, that he gave us, as we've been reminded each week. Uh, John, at the, at the very end, in the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31, he, he says, there were many, many things that Jesus did that are not written, but these things that he wrote, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this, this incident that we're reading about today, this is one of those things that John strategically places in his gospel that's not in any of the other gospels to the end that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. One one writer said regarding this incident here, this uh, visit of Jesus to the temple and this purification of the temple, he said we should not miss the way this incident fits in with John's aim of showing Jesus to be the Messiah. All his actions here imply a unique relationship with God and the things of God, specifically, in this case, the temple. So John is is wanting us to, he's wanting his readers to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he takes this story, as I said, that's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels, although there is a cleansing of the temple in the other Gospels. That cleansing happens at the the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Now some people say, oh, it's the same one. Uh, John either just took it out of uh, historical context and put it here, or maybe the other Gospel writers took it out of the historical context and put it where they put it. But I, I think the better way to understand it is it's actually two different times that Jesus visited and cleansed the temple. Once at the beginning of his ministry, which is where we would be at here, and then again toward the end, actually at the, in the very last week of his public ministry. And so similar, but yet at the same time, very different things that are happening. Something to note, I mentioned this previously, but something to know that with the exception of the information about John the Baptist, because the information about John the Baptist is in the uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. But with the exception of John the Baptist, the first five chapters of John are completely unique. There's no parallel in Matthew, Mark, or Luke to the first five chapters of John. So John is drawing from material that... Uh, no one else drew from or or referred to. John is is obviously in some ways, he's drawing from his own experience because he was there from the very beginning. So so he's just telling an aspect of the story that lends itself to his purpose of revealing to us Jesus as the Messiah. (laughs) But he's telling us things that the others haven't told us. So he tells us about this visit of Jesus to the temple. Now, let's, let's just kind of walk our way through the verses. And the first thing to note is <coughs> that it is the time of the Passover. The Passover, uh, John's gospel, <coughs> excuse me, John's gospel, um, seems to indicate well John's gospel actually references three Passovers possibly four I, I don't think the other one is is uh, there's just an unnamed feast that's mentioned some people say oh this is probably the Passover uh, I, I don't think so I think it's three Passovers but this is where we get the understanding that Jesus had about a three year public ministry because there were three Passovers that he specifically uh, attended uh, and uh, in his, of course, he would have attended Passovers in his early years. We have, um, we would, we would know that because at the Passover, all of the males were required to come to Jerusalem in celebration of the Passover. There were three feasts each year that all men were to attend in Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so at the Passover, there would be hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world that would make their way back to Jerusalem. So this is the first of the three Passovers that John mentions. Now, the Passover was, and still is to this day, because Jews, of course, celebrate the Passover today, it was a feast commemorating Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So if you want to read the story of the first Passover, go back to Exodus chapter 12, and you remember uh, God is, he's on the, the verge of bringing the people out of Egypt. He's brought a series of plagues on the Egyptians that the Pharaoh has not responded to. But the final plague that he's going to bring is that he's going to strike down the firstborn of all in Egypt. And he warns them that that he's going to do that, but he instructs his people to take a lamb, to slay the lamb, and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the doorpost of their home. And when the angel of judgment passes through to bring the judgment, when he sees the blood, he will pass over that house. Judgment will not come to that house. And so this is what the Jews were remembering each and every year in the first month of their calendar. So it's to commemorate, but it was also a prophecy. And so remember early on, earlier when we were looking at uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and when um, John and Andrew were with him and he points to Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was prophetically speaking of that other aspect of the Passover that it was pointing not just back to what God did in Egypt, but it was pointing forward to what God would do in the future. That he would provide a covering through blood to take care of sin so that judgment would pass over those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so that is what is happening here. That's the background at the feast of the Passover. And so in the temple courts, he found people selling. Now, the temple, this this temple was originally rebuilt when the people returned from the Babylonian captivity, but it was uh, a poor substitute in many ways for what had previously been there. Solomon's temple was was, uh, magnificent. It was a a glorious structure. The, The second temple, known as Zerubbabel's temple, was from a visual standpoint and from an architectural standpoint and all of that it was anything but magnificent it was um, unimpressive but Herod came along and in 20 BC Herod was renowned as a builder and so in 20 BC Herod began a remodel of the temple hoping to ingratiate himself to the Jews. And that remodel that began in 20 BC was not actually completed until 64 AD. And if you know anything about the the timeline, remember it was 70 AD that the temple was destroyed by Titus the Roman. And so it had been completed just six years before it was actually destroyed. But so, so they're they're coming now to Jerusalem to the temple, and it is this temple that by this time um, had been renovated to such an extent that it would have been by this time very very impressive. And so Jesus comes in and he notices that there are those who are selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, in the second cleansing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, he says that he quotes Jeremiah, actually, he quotes Jeremiah saying, this was to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so he he drives them out there as well. But here he says, stop making uh, this place into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house has consumed me. So there's just a little... Uh, I think it's Psalm 69, which has a messianic thread that runs through it. And, And there's just a sentence in there, zeal for your house has consumed me. The disciples later realized that that 69th Psalm was indeed messianic and this was part of the prophetic nature of that Psalm. And so as Jesus did this, the Jews then responded. And just note this, and we'll probably mention it as we go on. John uses the term Jews. You know, some people have tried to make uh, some big big argument that, well, you know, the New Testament is, and especially John, he's very anti-Jewish because he keeps referring to the Jews in a negative way. Well, let's just not forget that John is a Jew. And everybody around him is a Jew. Why does he he say the Jews? This is is John's way of referring to the leadership of Judea. You see, the, the people were not, all of them were not called the Jews until later in history. They're Israelites. But the Judeans, they were the ones who primarily came back into the land after the Babylonian captivity. And so... The, the, the title Jew, which is derived from Judah or Judea, um, that became the way they were referred to, but John uses it very, very specifically. He's talking about the leaders, the rulers of Judea. And so when he says the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And so this is where we see the absolute uniqueness of John. John tells us that Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Wow. Destroy this temple. Who gave you authority to do this to the temple? Jesus says, destroy this temple. Now, he's speaking, obviously, cryptically. He, he means one thing. They, they mean something else. But he's using this as a moment to actually p- prophesy what is going to happen. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you were going to raise it in three days? Give us a break. That's pretty much the tone. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, just again, a little bit of background. So, Jesus goes into the temple. He sees this marketplace that they've set up. Now, there was a practical reason for this because people that were coming from outside of Israel for the Passover, it would be a little bit difficult for them to bring all the animals with them for the sacrifice and so forth. So it was practically probably a good decision originally to provide them with sacrificial animals that they could, that they could purchase. But like so many things that maybe have a good idea when they start, it had just quickly become corrupted. And it was no longer about facilitating the worshipers. It was about the high priestly family making money and getting rich off of this. That's exactly what they were doing. This uh, became known... Uh, this this whole marketplace thing that was set up became known as the Bazaars of Annas. Now remember, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest at the time. Annas was the older one. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. So this is like they set up a family business in the temple. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he wrote this regarding Annas. He said, Annas was a great hoarder up of money who by open violence robbed the common priest of their official revenues. The Talmud, the Talmud, which is the Jewish um, compilation of all different kinds of things, the, the, the Talmud records a curse which a distinguished rabbi pronounced upon the high priestly family whose sons were the treasurers, sons-in-law were the assistant treasurers, And whose servants beat the common people with sticks. So this was a nightmare. Uh, It was an exploitation of the people. And so, again, like what probably started out as a good idea, it goes bad really quickly. And they um, put a high uh, exchange rate on if you're going to change your money. They would... uh, If you were going to purchase a clean animal, they would um, add uh, an exorbitant amount uh, onto that. Again, this was all a a money-making scheme. And so, as Jesus would say the second time, you have turned my father's house, which is to be a prayer house, you've turned it into a den of robbers. That's exactly what happened. But... Notice here, and this is, again, going back to to John wanting to show um, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus refers to the temple as my Father's house. And you know what he was saying when he said my Father's house? He was saying my house. Why have you taken my house? because in in that culture you know in our culture we we will make a strong distinction between father and son and in that culture obviously there was a distinction but part of the father and son imagery is that there's a oneness between them so Jesus when he says this he is he is claiming to have authority over the temple that's his claim that he has authority over the temple now it's so interesting because there is a passage in Malachi now Malachi in in your Bible and mine Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament right in the Jewish scriptures if you have a Jewish Bible um Malachi is the last of the prophets, but it's not the very last of the, of the Old Testament scriptures because they end on a chronological note with uh, the end of 2 um, Chronicles, I think, or Kings, one or the other. Um, they, they end at the, the period of the Babylonian captivity. But in the scroll of the prophets... The very last book would be Malachi. And this is what Malachi prophesied. And think about it in in regard to what we just read Jesus did. Behold, God is speaking, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's what happened right here. That's why Jesus does what he does and says what he says because they're in his house. Now, their response, of course, was, who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are to come in here and do this? And, and again, this is interesting because this is at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. So he was not yet that well-known he was known, but he wasn't yet that well-known. But he's beginning to put himself forward to the, to the corrupt leadership of the nation as someone who has authority. So their question is, who gave you this authority? And the answer, destroy this temple. And John tells us that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus said, in other words, kill me. You want to know what my authority is? Kill me and I'll come back to life. That's my authority. So what Jesus was doing there is he was pointing us forward to the ultimate evidence of his messiahship the ultimate proof that jesus christ is who he claimed to be is the resurrection from the dead that that's that's how we know listen there are some there are some people who claim to be christian there are some people who actually hold positions of authority, professorships and things like that in so-called Christian seminaries who deny that Jesus rose from the dead. They just flat out don't believe that he did. But the scriptures tell us that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. So you, so from the biblical standpoint, you have no basis to have a seminary if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let alone be a professor at what? But there are those who have turned away from the, the biblical faith and embraced some other version of Christianity that doesn't have a resurrected Jesus. Jesus said that the resurrection would be the the evidence of his authority. And I believe that that is indeed the case. What authority does Jesus have? What authority did he have to do what he did that day? His authority was that he was the Lord and he would prove it by rising from the dead. What authority people might ask today? What authority, or, or why should I listen to what Jesus has to say about how I live? Lots of people would ask that question today. Or, why should I listen to what Jesus has to say about how I am to worship God? Or, why should I listen to what Jesus has to say about what I should believe? Or, Why should I believe what Jesus has to say as opposed to other religious ideas? Well, here it is simply. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you don't have to listen to him. (laughs) It's just the opinion of one man who obviously got a lot of things wrong, mainly that he was going to rise from the dead. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, which he did... If Jesus did rise from the dead, then he actually is the one who has the authority to address all of those issues in our life. He has the authority to tell us how to live, how to worship, what to believe, and to tell us the truth about God, even if it contradicts what other religious systems reveal or supposedly revealed about god you see it if jesus didn't rise from the dead our faith is in vain but if he did rise from the dead it's like cs lewis said if 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 christianity isn't true it is of zero consequence but if it is true then it is of the utmost importance if Jesus didn't rise from the dead then Christianity isn't true and why are we here but he did rise from the dead and I'm not going to take the time to go into all of the different things that you could use to support the the scriptural claim that Jesus rose from the dead but but there are so many, so many things. Now, what, this is where I want to kind of begin to land here. We, we, we look at this story and we see it in its context. We see what Jesus was doing. But here's a question. What are the practical lessons from this event that we today should take away. Well, <clears throat> there there are a number of things. Like I said, we could go into deep detail on the resurrection and so forth, but we will leave that for now because we will get to it again and again. But I think one thing that we see here is that the Lord will not tolerate the defilement of his temple indefinitely. So the the temple was that that place that God allowed to be built where in some sense his presence would reside. But even when it was being built, there was the recognition, Lord, the heaven of the heavens can't contain you let alone this building. Solomon said that. He, he understood that. But it would be a place that would be identified with the Lord and in a way, a special way, really, his presence would reside there. And because of that, God declared that he would as people looked in that direction and prayed in that direction, he would listen to their prayer. But he also warned over and over again that if they were to defile themselves with sin, he would abandon that place and he would destroy that place. And he had done that back in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And it had been taken over again Uh, In the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, in the 160s BC, and then um, finally again in 70 AD by the Romans, God dealt with it. And now here Jesus is pronouncing a judgment and Jesus will say about the temple before his ministry is over, after he cleanses it the second time, he will say, behold Your house, he's now referring to the temple as their house. They've kicked God out. Your house is left to you desolate. And then came the destruction. But again, the point is the Lord will not tolerate defilement of his temple indefinitely. Now, that was the temple then. And although there will be a temple again in the future... During this period of time, the New Testament tells us that the church is the temple. So Paul says to the Corinthians, he he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you? He says something similar to the Ephesians. Ephesians. And, and so, Paul pictures the, the church collectively as the temple, but then Paul also says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So, according to the New Testament, the, the church collectively is the temple. All of God's people together, we make up this holy temple to the Lord But then we individually are the temple of the Lord as well because we are indwelt by that Spirit. So, just as there was this time where Jesus had to cleanse the temple, if you will, purify the temple, then he will at times do that with his church as well. I just so happened to be reading Revelation 2 and 3 over the past few days, just making a journey through Revelation again. And as I was reading the seven letters to the churches, sometimes I always forget, like, these are the words of Jesus, too. You know, we think of the words of Jesus almost exclusively in the Gospels. And then I start reading this, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, of course, these aren't the words of Jesus. These are seven letters that Jesus had penned by John and sent to the churches. And in those letters, there are seven letters, five of those churches are rebuked and warned of severe consequences by Jesus and then promised blessing if there is the proper response. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, this is in a sense, uh, these five out of these seven letters, there's no condemnation for Smyrna or Philadelphia, but for the rest of the churches, there is a, a, a condemning word. But this is a cleansing of the temple, so to speak. This is, this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing the same thing that he did in the actual temple in Jerusalem. He's coming in with his word and he's, he wants to clean things up. So listen to what he said. To Ephesus, I know your works. Each one of them, he starts with, I know your works. Then he gives them, in some cases, a bit of a commendation. But then he goes right to the issue You have left your first love. I know your works. I know you're doing this, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. What is the remedy? He says, Remember. From where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So, a cleansing. Jesus is seeking to cleanse. Pergamos and Thyatira. I know your works. I have a few things against you. And as we look at both of them kind of coupled together, we see that the issues were the same. The issues were sexual immorality and idolatry. Sexual immorality and idolatry had set in. You know, I got a letter from a friend last night who informed me that the church that she's been involved with for quite a few years and one that I've had many friends there and known about and had dear friends that were early on in the pioneering of the work, that the church just voted to affirm same-sex relations and to perform same-sex marriage. Well, needless to say, she's no longer at that church. But these are the kinds of things that were happening back when Jesus wrote to the churches of Asia at that time. And these are the kind of things that happen uh, throughout the long history of the church. Periods where the church falls into the sexual immorality of all different kinds of sorts. Times when the church falls into idolatry. And what is the word? Repent or I will come and fight against you. I will cast you into a sick bed. Then to Sardis, I know your works, that you have a name, that is alive, but you are dead. Remember how you received and heard, hold fast and repent. (coughs) Notice that word repent. Jesus uses it over and over again. And repenting is an invitation to turn. I think a lot of times people got the idea of repent wrong because it was always, repent, repent, you sinner. <laughs> but that's not the heart of God. God's saying, turn. Turn back to me. This is destructive. This will bring misery. This will lead to judgment. Turn around. That's what he's saying. Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold. I'm ready to vomit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. You are actually wretched miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and commune with them. And to each one that he gives the rebuke, he also gives the promise. To Ephesus, you will eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. To Pergamos and Thyatira, I will give you a new name and you will be clothed in white garments. To Laodicea, you will reign with Christ upon his throne. So again, this is, these these were letters to churches and you will find in the church around the world today, you will find different conditions and... You can bring it down sometimes to, well, you could look at denominations, movements, you could look at congregations. But there are times when Jesus will come and like he did in Jerusalem, he will come and he will cast the things out of the temple that are dishonoring to him. But then... Finally, we have to see it also in a more personal sense. Now, whatever is happening in the churches collectively is happening because individuals are making bad decisions and doing things God does not want them to do. But... There is a point where we have to go from the general to the specific and so individually. Perhaps we've allowed pride or bitterness or hatred or jealousy or lust or greed or idolatry to take over our personal lives. Forgetting that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. And again, the Lord will not indefinitely tolerate that. He gives us, he said said to Thyatira, he said, I gave you space to repent. I gave you space to turn. And, you know, God is not swift to judge. He's slow to anger. But if we persist, he gives us space to turn. But if we persist, there comes a point where he starts turning over tables. There comes a point where he starts dealing with us. So... Let Jesus forgive and cleanse. Don't persist in rebelling to Him to the point that there has to be a scene like what happened in the temple in Jerusalem that day. But respond to that conviction of the Spirit let the one who allowed himself to be destroyed so we wouldn't have to be. Destroy this temple. That's what would happen. But why did that happen? Well, it happened so we wouldn't have to be destroyed. Why was that lamb slain and its blood put over the doorpost so that... the angel of judgment would pass over that house, that they would not experience the judgment. So let's let the Lord have his way in our lives and and let him continue to build the temple, if you will, that he is building in us and through us. And what a great tie-in to our final time together today as we share in the bread and the cup because remember that the bread and the cup that symbolized the broken body and the blood of Jesus took place at the Passover. That meal was the Passover meal. And... Where the the bread and the cup had previously spoken of the lamb that was slain in Egypt, Jesus says, Now this is now going to speak to you about me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by my body being broken and my blood being shed. And you know, so the beautiful thing is, the bread and the cup are here for us today. And, and for some, it is the offer to return. Return, come, sup, sup with me. That's what Jesus said to the Laodiceans, who he says, I, you're making me sick. I want to vomit you out. But... I don't really want to vomit you out. I really want you to turn to me because I really want to have supper with you. I want to commune with you. But again, that word, repent, that word, turn back to me. And so today, as we share together in the bread and in the cup, for some, this will be that moment to just say, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me. And I, I I want to sup with you. I want to commune with you. I, I want to be right with you. And take this bread and this cup and take it as this is that tangible thing that is indicating that I am turning back to Jesus. Now that, that application isn't for everyone, for, for some. It will just be that time of, of communion because you're you're right with the Lord you're where you should be but also let's again let's remember that this is a moment to connect with the Lord this is a moment to say Lord I'm going out into the world this week I got a lot of things going on Lord I just want to be refreshed in you would you be with me would you strengthen me and so let's take together the bread and the cup and connect with the Lord in whatever way we need to connect. So Lord, we thank you for what you did. Lord, that you, by allowing yourself to be destroyed, that you destroyed death. Three days later, you raised up the temple. And Lord, you did that for us so we would not be destroyed, so our lives could be built up, so we could be the temple of the Holy Spirit collectively and individually. And so as we share now together in the bread and the cup, Lord, would you just meet us, whoever we are, wherever we've been. If we need cleansing, cleanse us. If we need renewal, renew us. If we need reassurance, reassure us. If we need peace, joy, grace, love, Lord, give it to us as we connect with you today, we pray. Amen.